Uh, if we haven't met, my name's Terry Smith. I'm the lead pastor here at the Life Christian Church. One of my favorite uh, places in the world is Rome. If you've never been there, I encourage you to figure out how to get there someday. Um, I love pretty much everything about Rome, including, you know, the food and the romance. But I particularly love the history and the perspective it brings. When I visit the Pantheon or the Colosseum or the Forum, all of which have, all of which have existed since around the time of Christ, I'm reminded that Jesus announced his kingdom and kingship in the face of the greatest empire ever known. Rome reigned over 400 million subjects and dominated the Western world and more. The Roman emperor was, of course, considered a divinity. But in one small, seemingly insignificant outpost, Palestine, the Jews said that there was only one God and Caesar wasn't him. And then Jesus and his followers said that Jesus was that one God who would come to earth as a human being to show us what God is like. And uh, so when the Romans would conquer a nation, they would allow them to keep their gods. Most of those nations were polytheistic. They'd allow them to keep their god as long as they pledged allegiance to the empire and to the emperor. Nation after nation did that, no problem at all. But not the Jews. And certainly not those Jews and then others who believed that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah and Lord and King who would reign forever. These people, of course, came to be called Christians. And so neither the Jews nor the Christians would call Caesar Lord. And neither the Jews nor Christians would compromise their worship of the one true God. So I think about this when I'm in Rome. Rome was called the eternal city, but the empire is long gone. The Jews, however, are back in their land, Israel, and Christianity continues to expand the kingdom of God that Jesus announced throughout the world. The two groups who wouldn't give in are the two groups who continue to have God's promises about them move forward yet today. I think about this when I visit the Arch of Titus. The Arch of Titus was built by Jews who were forced into slavery after Rome destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. Some 50,000 Jews were forced into slavery. They built, among other things, the Arch of Titus. I stand there at the Arch of Titus and I see these etchings of these Jewish slaves and I think about how that the Arch of Titus now stands in a state of ruin in Rome, but the Jews are in Jerusalem just like God said they would be through the Old Testament prophets. I think about this when I visit the Pantheon. The Pantheon was a temple dedicated to many gods, of course, but it's now a Christian church. The picture you see is a picture I took the last time I was in Rome, just before I attended Sunday morning service in the Pantheon. The Pantheon's now dedicated to the worship of Jesus Christ. I think about this when I visit the Forum, where the most important building is the Senate, and which is now a Christian church. I think about this when I stand in the Colosseum, where Christians were killed for sport, but now, though glorious, is in a state of ruin. I also think about the woman in the foreground, that gorgeous woman who is my wife, Sharon. The fact is, thank you, the fact is that the Roman Empire was not eternal, but 
the kingdom that Jesus brought to this planet goes on and on and on. The kingdom of God is indestructible. Now, this is an interesting lens to look through when we discuss the famous interaction between Jesus and his disciples just before the ascension when they asked him if he was going to overthrow Rome and set up his rule in Jerusalem. Um, you'll remember this story. Again, he's about to ascend. Uh, he's in a position of tremendous power at this point because he's, de- he's defeated death itself. And they now believe he can pretty much do anything he wants to. And Luke, the historian, says that after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He's talking to them about the kingdom of God, and they ask a logical question. Are you now going to overthrow Rome, at least in Palestine, and set up your earthly rule in in Jerusalem? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father is set by his own authority. And then it appears that he changes the subject. But actually, he's talking now about how the kingdom of God is actually going to come to this planet when he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses, not only in Jerusalem, not only is my kingdom coming to Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, but also to the ends of the earth. I invite you to hear the words of Jesus like this today. It's as if Jesus is saying, overthrowing Rome would be big, but I'm doing something bigger than that. Rome is now, but I'm doing something bigger than now. I'm doing something that's going to last forever. Rome will soon be gone. But the kingdom that I'm setting up will have no end. And then he told them that he was going to establish his kingdom, his rule, in the hearts of those who were there through the Holy Spirit, and that they and then others who believed in Jesus and were filled with the Holy Spirit would spread his kingdom throughout the entire earth. See, 2,000 years later, that kingdom continues to grow. And it grows in us and through us. And according to Scripture, that kingdom will have no end. Now, in recent months, we've been teaching through Colossians. Uh, One of the points that we've made is that when the Apostle Paul wrote to the people in Colossae, who were under Roman rule at that time, and called Jesus Lord, that he was saying in part, Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. See, everybody in the Rome-dominated world, they called Caesar Lord. But Paul said, Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is Lord. And when Paul called Jesus king, as he does a number of times in Colossians, he was saying in part, Jesus is king, and the kings Caesar has appointed, like Herod in Jerusalem, for instance, are not. But it's important that while Paul says that, that He, in alignment with Jesus and the way Jesus conducted himself towards the empire, was not in active opposition to Rome because God was doing something bigger than that. 
He, 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 he was saying, if you please, you know, I acknowledge the existence of Rome, and in fact, the Apostle Paul submitted to the authority of Rome. He submitted to Caesar. He submitted to Herod. It's just that he was playing on a higher level than anything that had to do with Rome. Rome was the largest empire the world had ever known, but, but Paul was saying, Jesus, who is Lord and King, has brought a kingdom that is just bigger than Rome. Don't focus on this earthy thing. As uh, Scott McKnight, the great commentator on Colossians, wrote, uh, Paul was not anti-imperial, he was supra-imperial. In other words, he didn't get up every day thinking about how to bring Rome down. He got up every day thinking about how to establish the kingdom of God. And it was just the kingdom of God was just bigger than anything to do with Rome. See, when we see this bigger perspective now, When we see this bigger perspective, it changes everything about how we live in this world as we've been teaching in recent weeks. And this includes the way that we think about relationships. Now, it may sound like a strange way to get to relationships, which is what I want to talk about today and which we've been talking about in recent weeks. But the fact is this truth of the indestructible kingdom should help us form indestructible relationships. Because when you get this in your mind, you understand that Jesus came not to overthrow Rome or to kill Romans. Jesus came to reconcile people to God and to one another now and forever. So let, let me, let me, kind of repeat myself, but it may take a few minutes for this to kind of uh, be grasped by all of us. I've thought a lot about it. I know you perhaps haven't. So let me just keep, uh, you know, sharpening my point and stabbing you with it. All right. Uh, so, so, so Jesus didn't want to lead a revolt against Rome because he was doing something bigger than that. And part of that is that he wanted to reconcile Romans to God and he wanted to reconcile Romans to Jews in the family of God. Let me show you a pretty practical example of how this played out. For Jesus, this wasn't just theoretical. He lived this out, or more appropriately, uh, accurately, he died this out. So let's look at two prominent Romans in the story of Jesus. Let's look at two Roman centurions. Okay, the the first one is the Roman centurion who led the soldiers who crucified Jesus. He was carrying out orders uh, given by Jewish and Roman rulers, but he was not innocent. He led the soldiers who not only crucified Jesus, but they also mocked him. They didn't just carry out orders. They were vicious in even the way they were carrying out this most vicious of capital punishments. Jesus on the cross could have, you know, called 10,000 angels and zapped those guys, or at least shamed them in some way. But instead, the story plays out like this. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. The soldiers came up and mocked him, and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. All right. 
So now, fast forward, you know, about 40 days later, when the disciples are standing with Jesus, and back to this thing in Acts chapter 1, where they're asking the question, are you going to overthrow Rome? You have to imagine fresh in their mind is a Roman centurion leading soldiers who killed him, but now Jesus enters the grave, defeats death, shows back up, and these guys are standing there now full of bravado, if you please, saying, if you can defeat death, you can do anything. Let's go get those Romans. Do you, do, do you see kind of what's happening here? You know, let's overthrow Rome. Let's, let's, let's get those Roman soldiers. Let's bring them down. But again, Jesus is doing something bigger because what Jesus actually wants to do is to save Roman soldiers and to make them a part of the family of God alongside his Jewish disciples who wanted to go to war in that moment. So now fast forward several years into the future. Who is the first non-Jewish Gentile to hear the good news about Jesus, confess his faith, be baptized in water, be baptized in the Holy Spirit? It is a Roman centurion named Cornelius. Acts chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. God shows up to the very Jewish apostle Peter, who had a tremendous moment of shame at the cross while a Roman centurion crucified his Lord. God shows up to, to, to this very Jewish apostle Peter and tells him through a vision to go preach the good news about Jesus to a non-Jew, a Gentile. And when Peter does, the Holy Spirit comes on Cornelius, his whole household, and Cornelius becomes a part of the family of God. And not only that, but the apostle Peter now spent several days in the home of Cornelius, presumably having table fellowship, which in Judaism was a big no-no, probably eating non-kosher meals, and thus begins the reconciliation project that God had had in mind since before the beginning of the world between Jew and Gentile. What does Peter say when he gets to Cornelius' house? Acts chapter 10, verse 28. He said, you are well aware it is against our law for a Jew to associate or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent, let me read that again. But Peter says, but God showed me I shouldn't call anyone. It's a big word. We'll come back to it later. Maybe not in reference to this. But when we're saying anyone, guess who we mean? anyone. God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. So, so, so do you, so do you see what's going on here? Are you going to overthrow Rome, Jesus? No, I'm not going to overthrow Rome. Are you going to, we're going to get those Romans, those people who crucified. Oh no, we're not going to do that. What are you going to do? I'm going to save them. I'm going to bring them into the family. And you guys who want to go get them are going to be forced not only to not go get them, but to become friends and more than friends. You're going to become brothers and sisters with these Romans who you view now as your enemies. See, when Jesus came to this planet, he came on a reconciliation project. The word reconcile in the New Testament literally means to change from enmity 
to friendship. Guys, reconciliation isn't about getting along better with someone you like. It's about making an enemy a friend. Now back to Colossians, a big part of the message of the Apostle Paul in his letters in the New Testament is that Jesus came not only to reconcile people to God, but that he came to reconcile people to each other. And he spoke about it in the most drastic of terms. Well, let's show at least at first in Colossians. Let's, let's, let's go back a couple months in our teaching. Let me remind you how at the beginning of Colossians, Paul is saying to these people, I don't have time to go into the whole background of Colossians today and so on. If you're interested in more, we talked about this in great depth over the last couple months, and you can go back and watch it uh, if you'd like. But he's telling the Colossians essentially who Jesus is. He wants them to get a picture of how, of who Jesus is. And then he's going to tell them what Jesus did. You remember this hymn? Our band wrote a song to reflect the words of this hymn. Colossians chapter one, verse 15. Paul says, the son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. This is who Jesus is. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. So he starts, he's talking to the Colossians who are having trouble believing that in G they could find in Jesus everything they needed. And he's saying, look who Jesus is. He's before everything. He caused everything. He, he is the firstborn of creation, the firstborn from the dead. He's the, he's, he's the one who started the church. Wow, look at Jesus. And then he starts talking about what Jesus did. Verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile. So the God of the universe shows up on the planet to do what? Reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And now you get this sense of the nature of reconciliation when he talks about how that once you, which would include us, were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. He said, even though humanity were at, was at enmity with God through the fall of Adam and our own sin, even though you were enemies, in the great economy of God, Jesus came to make enemies the sons and daughters of God. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. So Colossians starts with who Jesus is and what Jesus did to reconcile us who were enemies of God to God through his death on the cross. But Paul doesn't stop there because as we've taught a lot in recent weeks, we'll finish this series next Sunday, but as we've taught a lot in recent weeks, Paul moves then from what God did for humanity to what humanity is supposed to do for each other. So uh, you might remember that Colossians moves from Christology which is who Jesus is, to soteriology, which is the theology of salvation, to soteriology, which is what Jesus did, to, 
and here's the point I'm going to land on, ecclesiology, which is the, 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 the theology of the church, ecclesiology, which, which speaks of how who Jesus is and what Jesus did creates one new family called the church. So when you look at the four chapters of Colossians, that, those are the three major movements. Who Jesus is, wow! What Jesus did, he reconciled us who were enemies to God. Wow! Now, what's the next point, Paul? And he created this new thing called the church in which people who used to be enemies, like Jewish apostles and Roman centurions, now become brothers in Christ. I mean, this is big. And this is why Paul, thank you for the, I appreciate that. It's football season, but I'll take the golf clap. It's always fine. This is why Paul closes his message to the Colossians with a, 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 a full chapter and a half out of the four where he talks about relationships and in particular how to maintain unity in a very diverse church, which is what Colossae had. A church, I suppose, similar to ours, but maybe even more diverse. And this is why we've been hammering this passage in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, where he gets into the ecclesiology part of Colossians. And he says, here in this church, there is no Gentile or Jew. There is no Simon Peter and Roman centurion Cornelius. We don't think that way. Jesus reconciled you to each other in the same family. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, I'll read it quickly. We've taught about it a lot, but I want to remind you of the sense of what Paul's saying now. Therefore, you people who used to be enemies is how you're going to get along together as members of the same family. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. You're going to need to learn how to forgive each other because, you know, you're coming from two totally different places. Onesimus, the runaway slave, and Philemon, his owner, who Paul's confronting to not be his owner, but to make Onesimus his brother, who are sitting there in the same church reading this letter. You guys are going to have to learn how to forgive each other, he says, and bear with each other. And forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. See, one of the most amazing things about Christianity is its diversity and how people in, who in an earthy way might be naturally adversarial now become friends and more than friends. Um, we've witnessed this over the years here at TLCC, but the reality is uh, this is the truth of Christianity for 2,000 years. doesn't mean it's expressed in every local church, but this is the truth of Christianity for 2,000 years. I like uh, the, the perspective offered by Joshua Chatrow in his book, um, Telling a Better Story. He, he writes, One of Christianity's unique features in its original ancient context was that while it denied that God could be worshipped along with other gods, it attracted people from all sorts of regions, ethnicities, and races. 
See, Christianity is, people typically talk about the exclusiveness of Christianity because part of Christianity is there's only one way to God and that's through Jesus Christ. So in that sense, it's exclusive. But once, but then you have to understand it is then the, becomes the most inclusive religion, if you want to use that word, or worldview, if you want to use that word, in the history of humanity. People have to look at Christianity in terms of its inclusiveness because anybody anywhere who believes in Jesus can become a full part of the Christian family. It doesn't matter who you are or where you're from. So he writes, so see, we're accustomed to thinking about Christianity in terms of its growth and, and, and influence in Western civilization and in this country. But you have to have a bigger picture of Christianity than that. He writes, today Christianity itself is still proving to be remarkably inclusive and is the most geographically diverse belief system in the world. Its growth in the non-Western world is incredible. You won't hear about this in the media, guys. Uh, but this is just the truth of things. Uh, you hear in the media, they want to make it sound as if Christianity's over. It's not over. We're, st- we're just getting started. All right? Uh, today, Christianity, so, so its growth in the non-Western world is incredible. More Christians attend church in China than in all of Europe. Tens of millions of people attend church in China. I think I see George Flores up there behind that mask. Is that you, George, who's been there and visited the church and spoken to the church in China? In China, East Asia is projected to have 17, uh, pardon me, 171.1 million Christians by 2020, which will be 10.5% of its population. Africa, and I see a number of Christians here today from Africa. Africa will have 630 million Christians by 2020, nearly one half of its entire population. Christianity's geographical center has quite remarkably migrated throughout its history. This migration further testifies to Christianity's unique transcultural message. For these reasons, it isn't hyperbole to describe Christianity as the most culturally, racially, ethnically, and socioeconomically diverse worldview in history. One of the reasons that unity is such an important part of the Christian message is because of our diversity, and we have to learn to get along with people who are completely unlike us. Here's one example. Here's one example. So right now, on the, in, the, in, in the world of, of uh, um, uh, geopolitics, China is in an adversarial position to the United States. Right? We hear a lot about it. Bad China, bad China, bad China. And I don't want to speak to the geopolitical situation. That's not my job today. We elect people who need to deal with all that. I don't want to talk about that part. I simply want to say it's interesting for me as a Christian to think about the fact that I have millions and millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of brothers and sisters in Christ in China. And when you think on that level and you think about the fact, guys, I know this is almost offensive to some people, it's just true. The United States is temporary. In an eternal context, China is temporary in an eternal context, but who we are to one another as believers in Jesus Christ is forever. Now, 
I, I, don't, I don't know whether that means or doesn't mean that we should have tariffs and what it means in terms of, I, and that's not what I'm concerned about today, okay? I'm going to let them deal with it, but I'm always going to remember that I have to think on a higher level than the way everybody else in the world thinks because my first allegiance is to Jesus and to his people. Wherever they are, Wherever they come from, this perspective should remind us to not over-identify with temporary things, even like nations, not to over-identify. I am an American. I'm proud to be an American. I don't want to be anything else but American. You understand? But that's not my primary identity. I am a follower of Jesus, the God of the universe who showed up on this planet, who reconciled me, who was an enemy to God, to himself, and then he reconciled me to people like you. That's the bigger picture. So we don't over-identify with nations or political parties or even our race or ethnicity. Not We identify, but we don't make it our primary identity. Through Jesus, God has made us one new humanity. He's doing something bigger than that. This way of thinking, especially if you live it out in your life, is countercultural. We all know that we're in a season of extreme polarization. Few people want to talk about reconciliation, and it's tragic. We would, in this country, seems right now, rather express our outrage at each other. We would rather cancel someone who has different views than we do. We seem to have a need to scapegoat and blame and win at all costs. But this is not the Jesus way. That's not what Christ died for. Christians must never be about just about winning an argument. We must ultimately be about reconciling people to God and one another. Here's what Paul said to the Corinthians. He said, so from now on, we no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view. Let's go back to the anyone piece of that. From now on, we no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. Listen, if you become a believer, I didn't say this in the first service, I'll just say this to you now. When you become a believer in Jesus, you give up some of your rights. And part of your right is to hate other people. You give that right up. You don't get to do it anymore. It's over. Stop it. We don't look at anyone like that anymore. Who, what does anyone mean? Help me out here. What does anyone mean? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry. I need to read it slower again. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What's reconciliation about? Making an enemy a friend. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, and here's how part of what you have to think of when you think about reconciliation, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the, recon the message of reconciliation. Guys, we must always be for reconciliation. This doesn't mean that we don't fight for what's right at an earthy level. It doesn't mean that at all. It's not to say that things happening in our culture and society 
are not worthy of our effort, our attention, our care, our concern. It's just we always do things in the earth realm with the heaven view in mind. And so so we just have a bigger picture in mind. So we don't just want our political party to win an election. We want reconciliation. We don't just want a just decision from the Supreme Court about this or that. We want reconciliation. We don't just want justice. We want reconciliation. We do not get caught up in a desire to crush our enemies. We want to make our enemies friends. So let me ask you a question. Who is your Roman centurion? Who is that person or that group of people that the world would tell you or some part of your old sinful nature would say to you that you'd just like to crush Maybe they tried to crucify you. But you know that Jesus would say that you need to forgive and pray that they are reconciled to God and you. Here are a couple of examples of what I mean. Uh, one, silly. The other two, more serious. So, everybody okay? You're really quiet, quiet right now, aren't you? It's, it's heavy stuff, isn't it? I mean, it's almost, in a way, it's almost deflating. Oh, I don't get to be so mad when I read the paper. <laughs> Again, please don't misunderstand me. It doesn't mean we don't care. It doesn't mean that we don't participate. It doesn't mean that we don't, you know, get involved in politics. It doesn't mean, it just means we see it as secondary to our relationships with each other. All right, so this week, I am... Uh, somewhat obsessed with the appearance of my lawn. <laughs> Too obsessed. Uh, God always seems to test me in this area. And um, so um, in the neighborhood we live in, we have to pay to have the leaves removed from our lawn. It doesn't happen through the township. Uh, we have to pay to have them removed. And... Um, and we, we have a, 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 a lawn with a lot of trees, and so there are a lot of leaves. And, and I don't want to see one leaf on my pretty green grass. And so uh, I'm sitting in my study writing this sermon, and uh, I look out the window, and I see a neighbor a couple doors away, and he's pulling, as I watch, tarp after tarp full with leaves, He's dragging it across another neighbor's lawn, across the street, and he's dumping these leaves in a common area about 50 yards from my immaculately green, leaveless lawn. And I know that the homeowner association says that is illegal, and you will go to jail. They don't actually say that, but should put people in jail for this, but that's another story. And I'm sitting there and I'm writing this sermon about reconciliation and all this stuff and I, and I, my blood pressure goes to about 900. And I, and I don't have any problem confronting people. I, I, I've learned how to do it hospitably, but I have no problem confronting people. And so I open the door to my front door and I step on the porch and I'm gathering in my mind what I'm going to say to him while he's over there stomping all these leaves in the common area, which are going to end up on my yard. And as I'm standing there, this message comes in my mind, and it's like I hear the voice of God say, I'm concerned about something bigger than your stupid leaves. 
It's a neighbor that I don't know yet. We're new to the neighborhood. We've, you know, it's quarantine, it's masks, so we're not having the kind of normal interaction we'd have. And my first interaction with this guy would be about his stupid leaves. And I sense the Holy Spirit say to me, you know, I might have another plan with your relationship with this neighbor than how you feel about the leaves. Do you understand the pettiness of that interaction? And, and, and a couple scriptures come to mind. My preaching just kills me. I hate some of the stuff I preach. I make myself so angry. Scripture comes to mind, Colossians 4, where Paul's in prison in Ephesus, and he says, pray for us that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. In other words, he says, hey, I'm in prison, tough time, but the thing I care most about is Jesus being shared. And then he says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. People outside the church. Make the most of every opportunity. This is what I'm thinking. I'm standing on the lawn and I'm thinking, I'm thinking about this passage. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace. Seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. And I'm like, ah. And then I, a random passage comes to mind. Jesus said in Luke 16, 9, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. And you know, the, the point, I think the point's pretty obvious. God's saying, hey, if you, if you play this relationship right, you might have a friend literally forever. Or you can yell at him about the leaves. More important, somebody told me that the day after the election, there are a lot of stories around like this. Don't uh, try to guess who said what to who, when, but so, but I need to be able to say, somebody told them that the, that, that, um, the day after the election, that a new Christ follower uh, went off at the guy talking to me about how outraged he was at the person he didn't vote for, and for the, and at the people who voted for the person he didn't vote for, the barbarians. The, the other guy, the guy talking to me, a seasoned Christ follower, who voted for the other guy that this guy was outraged about and all the people voted for him, listened for a while, and then he said, they were friends. He said, uh, come here. Now, in today's world, that means put him up. He said, come here. And he put his arms around him, and he gave him a hug, and he said, you know what? I love you, and our friendship is so much bigger than this election. See, this is the way this changes how we conduct our relationships with each other. Or I came across an old sermon this week written by a friend of mine who's publicly talked about some of the struggles in his marriage, but who said this about his marriage in light of the teaching of Scripture, Ephesians 5, where Paul says that, that marriage, the relationship between a man and a woman and the covenant of marriage is a picture of Christ and his church and that there's something mysterious about it that just, that's important to what God's doing in the world. You know, that's the bigger picture of marriage. And, and, and my friend wrote, my wife and I invest our lives in a relationship that is an illustration of the relationship between Christ and his church. And we do the best that we can to spend the rest of our days together, bringing glory and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ through the way that we love, respect, honor, and cherish one another. So that when it's all said and done, it's not about me and what I experienced. It's not about me and how satisfied I was and how my needs were met. It's about a godly heritage and a godly legacy that has been left behind when, because we grasped and understood and walked in the design of this thing we call marriage. What's, what's the picture there? All of a sudden, when you get this bigger than that mentality, you think about everything in your life 
including blowing up things that God has put together that no man can tear asunder. You think about that thing in light of this bigger picture. What is God doing in my marriage? What is God saying through my marriage? How is my marriage a testimony to my children? How is my marriage a testimony to my neighbors? It's kind of heavy stuff, isn't it? So let me shift gears. I need to close. I'm not quite to closing, but I'm on page seven of nine and a half. Two keys to bigger than that. Is everybody okay? Are you glad you came? You kind of wish you wouldn't have today. Like, oh. Here's the first. It's obvious. It's to forgive. Forgiveness is an act of grace. Here's what Paul said in Colossians 4.13. He talks about all this diversity, and then he says, Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. That word forgive, kind of unique to the way the word forgive is used in other places in Scripture, it's translated from the same word the word grace is translated from, the word chariz. So, He's connecting forgiveness to grace. And remember grace, the grace of God says that you don't deserve that Jesus would come and do what he did and reconcile you to God, but he did it. He did it out of grace. It's unmerited favor, right? Uh, and, 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 and now he's saying, just like God showed grace to you, you show grace to others. You don't forgive people because they deserve it. You don't forgive people because they change their minds about whatever you have a disagreement about. You forgive because Christ forgave you. So you see something like Colossians 3.13 in the, in the CEV, put up with each other and forgive. Here's that word again, all this word. Anyone who does you wrong just as Christ has forgiven you. I just want to remind you, that Jesus told a parable, Matthew 18, where he described a person who couldn't or wouldn't forgive someone else as being tortured. There's another word that's translated forgive throughout the New Testament, and it literally means to release, to hurl away, to free yourself. See, when we don't forgive, we're the ones who are imprisoned. Philip Yancey, in his inimitable way, wrote in his book, uh, What's So Amazing About Grace, sometimes I let my mind wander and imagine a world with no forgiveness. What would happen if every child bore grudges against his or her parents and every family passed down feuds to future generations? I let my imagination run further to a world in which every former colony harbors grudges against its former imperial power, and every race hates every other race, and every tribe battles its rivals as if all of history's grievances amass behind every contact of nation, race, and tribe. I get depressed when I imagine such a scene, Yancey writes, because it seems so close to history as it now exists. Then he says, not to forgive imprisons me in the past and locks out all potential for change. I thus yield control to another, my enemy, and doom myself to suffer the consequences of the wrong. And hear this. Yancey says, I once heard an immigrant rabbi made an astonishing statement. The rabbi said, before coming to America, I had to forgive Adolf Hitler. I did not want to bring Hitler inside me to my new country. I had to, what does anyone mean? 
It pretty much means anyone. And this rabbi said, I had to forgive Adolf Hitler who killed six million of us in the Holocaust. Now, did that set Adolf Hitler free? No, I presume Adolf Hitler is not in good shape. But it set the guy who'd been wronged by Adolf Hitler free. I'll uh, start to close with this story. And Pete, if you hear me, you can come out if you'd like. Same, same time next service. I'm a little behind. We're not going to get to the last page, okay? So um, I, a couple years ago, I asked a woman who I've known a long time, long time uh, part of TLCC, what she was doing for Christmas. And she said, I'm going to spend Christmas Day with, and she names the name of her ex-husband, and, and the, she then names the name of his newer, younger wife, who he left her for, and with our kids and grandkids. And I thought I misunderstood her because I had known for years she was understandably eaten up with anger and bitterness at her husband and what he had done to her. And I said, you're... I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to say, oh, that's wonderful. I was thinking in my head, are you crazy? So, so I have a lot of non-pastor thoughts, if, in case you haven't noticed. And I said, you're what? She said, oh, pastor, you don't, you, you don't know my story. You don't know the rest of the story, do you? She said, now listen, I walked with them many years ago through her husband cheating younger woman, refusing to repent and reconcile, marrying the woman. Now, many, many years have passed, okay? So I know this story. She said, you know, pastor, several years ago, you were preaching about forgiveness downstairs. This is when we were meeting downstairs before we finished the auditorium. She said, you build a bridge. You had somebody build a bridge across the room. And, you, and, and she said, you told a story about how you'd forgiven someone who'd hurt you many times and how that it set you free. And, and, and I don't even remember, guys, exactly how I did this. But somehow or another, I made the point, you know, at some point, you have to take action for forgiveness. And sometimes you have to walk across the bridge. And we'd done a sketch, now I'm remembering it now, where we had people who needed to forgive each other at the opposite side of this bridge. And they'd, they'd, they'd done this sketch where, where they hadn't forgiven each other. And, and I said, at some point, you have to walk across the bridge you have to take the action to forgive somebody. And I said, I'm going to walk across the bridge today. And, and I encourage any of you who need to make a radical act of forgiveness. I'm going to encourage you to walk across the bridge with me. And I walked across the bridge. And then that morning in all three services, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people walked across that bridge. Well, anyway, this woman says to me, that morning, pastor, when I walked across that bridge, all the hatred, all the bitterness, all the outrage I felt towards my husband and her, it just immediately left me. And she said, she said, Pastor, I know it may seem strange to you. I'm going to have Christmas Day there. But the fact is, so many years have passed. We have kids in common. I've become friends with his wife. And... That's where I'm spending Christmas Day. Now listen, to all of you who have ex-spouses, I'm not saying go spend Christmas Day, okay? All right? I'm, I'm not, 
in, in many situations, maybe most situations, that would be extremely unhealthy and probably not a wise thing to do. But please understand, can you get the larger point? I'm not saying go spend time with your ex-spouse. I'm saying forgive. Don't hold people's sins against them. I'm saying God wants our enemies to become our friends. He wants us to be thinking about whether or not they're being reconciled to God. Some of you may never come back again. You're saying, this guy's really messing me up. The gospel messes us up, including, I'm not going to blame the gospel for preaching so long. And, but, all right, here's the second thing. It's to thanksgive. So first of all, forgive. Secondly, thanksgive. I would just encourage you when you see the text in Colossians to notice how often the word thanks or gratitude is mentioned. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Colossians 3.15, since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Devote yourselves to prayer being watchful and thankful. Guys, when we're thankful, it's hard to be angry. It's hard to be aggrieved. It's hard to insult. It's hard to think, argue first. And this week of Thanksgiving should cause all of us to focus on how thankful we should be to God for His grace and to somehow find the grace to highlight whatever good we can about our Roman centurion. And maybe for us to cross that bridge and to be able to forgive and to satisfy the desire of God to reconcile us to one another as members of the same family. God bless you guys. Thank you so much.